When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Content warning. This episode has mentions of suicide and domestic violence. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Here we are with another true horror episode. It's been quite a while since the last one. In fact, a couple of these stories were submitted last April when my last true episode went up. So thank you to those who submitted way back then for your patience. The submissions I got this time did not disappoint. They are an eclectic bunch of ghosts, cryptids, aliens, doppelgangers, and I don't even know how to categorize a couple of them. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in and shared their stories with me. Now, let's get started. Our first story this evening is by Rosemary Lauren. Rosemary is a friend of mine, which for me made this story all the more terrifying. She is not one to fabricate something just for fun, and every second of this had me on edge. I begged her to write this down for me to tell you all, so here we go. In 2012, I was closing in on a decade of working in the apartment industry. It was a very rewarding job, but at the same time, during those 10 years, I had stockpiled quite a few cautionary tales illustrating why people might think twice before entering property management as a career. Resident temper tantrums, domestic disputes, vandalism, theft, basically think of a reason to call the cops, and it eventually happened. Surprisingly, none of those cautionary stories involved death. It happened, sure. In an apartment community, you have a couple of hundred, even a thousand people, all living in a finite amount of space. On a long enough timeline, people die on property. Death in the community came in all different shapes and forms. Expected, unexpected, accidental. Sometimes management would find out right away. Sometimes not. Regardless, the apartment staff would always handle each death with care. Compassion and understanding were always shown to the next of kin who would come to arrange the deceased's affairs. It was a humbling experience for me each time. But life would literally go on. The person who passed away, their apartment would eventually be made ready again. A new tenant would move in, normal business would resume for everyone. Most of the time. In 2012, I was working at a 300-unit property in an affluent part of Houston. The community wasn't brand new, but it wasn't old. It consisted of multiple three-story garden-style buildings. The courtyards were lovely and tree-lined. It was a quiet place, 
mostly young professionals, some retired folks, a handful of grad students. I had a lot of love for it. I still do. I was off the day it happened, home on a Friday around 5 p.m. when I received a phone call from my office. It was my coworker. I'll call her Amanda. Can you come to the property? I think there's been a suicide. It was a tragedy. She was so young. I'll call her Jessica. She'd always been kind and cheerful when she came by to pick up a package or put in a work order. I had just seen her the week before when she popped by to ask about pest control. The day that she died, she and her boyfriend had broken up. From what I was told by the officer on the scene, she had apparently gone out and purchased a handgun and a bottle of liquor. At some point, her boyfriend, I guess ex-boyfriend, became aware that she was in crisis. She stopped answering her phone. He showed up at the apartment. She refused to answer the door. When he had finally resorted to trying to climb the balconies to reach her third floor apartment, he saw her at the sliding glass door, closing the vertical blinds. He was the last person to see her alive. The ex-boyfriend came to the apartment office, frantically asking for Amanda to let him into Jessica's apartment. He wasn't on the lease, so Amanda legally couldn't do that. But she called the police for a welfare check. The officer arrived, and when Jessica wouldn't answer the door, the fire department came. They broke down the door. She was already gone. No one had heard the gunshot. This is when Amanda called me. She had an infant son and had to go pick him up from childcare. Are you okay if I go? She asked. I could tell that she was heartbroken. She had known Jessica too, but she didn't have a choice about leaving. Yes, we've got it under control. The maintenance supervisor, I'll call him Oscar, had offered to stay with me and secure the apartment after the police released it back to us. The fire department had destroyed the door jam, and it would need to be secured. The next few hours passed in a blur, answering resident questions, answering questions from the crime scene investigators, answering questions from my supervisors, incident reports needed to be completed. I entered the apartment with an officer. I was shocked to see the state of it. Pictures had been ripped from the walls and smashed. Books thrown from a now empty shelf left marks on the walls. They laid where they had fallen. Some opened, some closed. Clothes had been pulled from the hangers. Every interior door was flung open, closets, cabinets, even the oven. It was like stepping into an 800 square foot world of chaos and rage and grief. An empty liquor bottle laid on its side on the counter. The police and investigators filed out. Oscar took out an exacto knife, kneeled, and began cutting out the carpet. So the family doesn't see, he explained quietly. Months passed. Maintenance made the apartment ready. We began showing it to prospective tenants. A week after it was on the market, a man from out of state, I'll call him John Smith, looked at it and leased it on the same day. John was starting a new position with a nearby company. He'd be able to walk to work. He liked the neighborhood because it seemed like a sociable place, and he was moving here without knowing anyone. A week after John moved in, he called the office. I could tell he was agitated by the way he gave a sharp, Hey, 
in response to my normal telephone greeting. I don't appreciate maintenance entering my apartment without notification. What's going on? I responded. John explained that he had come home for lunch and found things out of place, as he put it. He had left his sliding glass door blinds in the living room open when he went to work. Being on the third floor, he didn't find it necessary to close them, so he never did. Never, he emphasized. And he had just bought a bookshelf he hadn't assembled yet, but he had unpacked his books and stacked them neatly on the floor. Now they were laying all over the place. I assured him that I'd get to the bottom of it and call him back. I checked the computer. No work orders were open for John's unit. No work orders were open for that building. I called Oscar, and he confirmed with the other maintenance technician that no one had entered the apartment. I even pulled the computerized key log. John's key hadn't been checked out since the last time I'd pulled it on the day of his move-in. I called John back and relayed all of this, but I wanted him to feel like I was taking his concerns seriously, so I offered to have his locks changed. He seemed satisfied with that, so that's what we did. I can't remember if I felt like something was wrong at that point. A week later, Amanda and I were in the office together. She was part-time at the property, and I always enjoyed the days we got to work together. Her laid-back demeanor and dry sense of humor made the workday pass quickly as we went about our tasks. The phone rang, and she answered it while I made follow-up calls to residents regarding their work orders. When I got off the phone, I looked over at her. She was off the phone now, too, sitting with her arms crossed, staring at me with a concerned look on her face. That was John Smith. He says someone was in his apartment when he wasn't home. This is the second time it's happened? Amanda hadn't been in the office the day of the first incident, and I guess I had gotten busy and forgotten to mention it to her. I gave her a condensed version of what had occurred and asked her what had happened this time. She said that John came home at lunch to find his bedroom closet open, the light on, and a small ceiling crawl space to the AC register was open. It was only about a foot across, much too small for someone to crawl through. Insulation and drywall from the open hatch had ended up all over his suits in the closet. He had not been made aware that anyone was coming in his apartment that day. Amanda said she'd investigate and call him back. So we go through the same routine as before. We checked to see if someone had entered a work order accidentally for his apartment. No. We checked the computerized key log to see if the key had been checked out. Of course it hadn't. I radioed Oscar. He didn't go in there either, but he was concerned by the question, and probably by the weirdness in my voice, so he said he was coming to the office. I put the maintenance radio back on the charging cradle and turned to look at Amanda. I'll never forget the look on her face at that moment because I'm sure it's exactly how my face looked too. Neither of us said anything. To even think what I was thinking felt wrong. It felt disrespectful. Jessica was a real person and what happened was still very emotional for me and Amanda. We just sat in silence because that was the only option. Oscar came in and I asked him to change John's locks again. He just stared at me quizzically and then agreed to do it. I called John and once again explained that no one from our office had entered the apartment, but we would change the locks and he would be credited on his rent for having to take his suits to the dry cleaner. He accepted these terms and hung up. Another week passes. I come in on a Saturday morning and check messages. 
The first and only message is from John, asking me to call him. It was time-stamped around 3 a.m. I call John, and what he tells me next slams my stomach into my feet. Friday night, John goes to bed, and somewhere around 1 o'clock, he wakes up to the sounds of someone trashing his apartment. His bedroom door is closed, so he can't see anything. He quickly hits the thumb lock on the bedroom door and grabs his cell phone. He calls 911 and tells them that someone has broken in, that they are in his apartment destroying it. They send the police out immediately. The sounds persist, crashing, slamming. John tells me that he heard whoever it was open the oven and slam it shut several times. He was terrified. He sounded terrified in telling me the story. Sometime between the 911 call and the police arriving, just a matter of minutes, the noise stops. John stays in his bedroom until the police knock and announce themselves. With a dispatcher on the phone, he runs to the front door and unlocks it. That's when he noticed that it was still locked from the inside. The police determined that there was no one else inside of the apartment. In fact, There was no property damage at all, nothing out of place. John was certain, based on the noises, that he wouldn't have a stick of furniture left intact. But there wasn't a throw pillow or picture out of place. The police decided that John wasn't intoxicated and took an incident report, but there was really nothing more they could do. I have tried to justify the things that happened in this apartment the three weeks that John lived there. But at the end of the day, I don't have an explanation. I don't know why he would lie about these things. There didn't seem to be a logical reason. In Texas, there is no law stating that you have to notify a new tenant of a previous resident's passing. So I never told John. And honestly, I never thought it was something that needed to happen. Maybe it was my own bias. I didn't believe in ghosts, so I didn't think that telling a new resident that someone had died there was pertinent information. No one on staff told John. He didn't know anyone in the community, so I doubted that someone had told him about the previous resident. Even if they had, and John was uncomfortable living where someone had passed away, the company I worked for had a caveat, a 30-day satisfaction guarantee. If someone moves in and decides that they want to move out within the first 30 days for any reason, they were welcome to do so without penalty. John concocting an elaborate story to the point of calling the police seemed to make no sense to me. That being said, I did verify John's story as best I could. I called the community police officer and asked him to verify that John had called the cops the night before. About an hour later, the courtesy officer called me back, confirming John's story. I called John and asked him to come to my office and we proceeded to have a very awkward conversation without invoking the word ghost somehow. I asked John if he wanted to move. He wanted to, but the thought of having to look for a new apartment when he had just moved to a new city to start a new job was an overwhelming prospect. I suggested we move him into a different apartment on the community, and he said yes, without hesitation. I made the arrangements, and he was moved within a few days. And that's the story. John moved and lived in his new apartment without incident. A bit of time passed. I was transferred off the property to a new community. 
and then I changed careers a few months later. I don't know what happened after that. I don't know if anyone ever moved into Jessica's apartment, though I'm sure someone did eventually. I think about it from time to time and hope whatever happened, Jessica is at peace. One last thing that I have always found weird was when I called my regional manager to tell her why I was transferring John to another apartment. Without hesitation, she told me to deduct any moving expenses John ended up with from his rent. We would cover all moving costs. I didn't ask any questions. I just did it. But her response did make me wonder how many times this had happened on other apartment communities under my company's management. This next story is from Leo Mistyuk. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Hi, so a quick background about me. I had slightly unusual things happen to me throughout my adult life. Basic things like cabinets closing downstairs, shadow things moving across the doorway in the other room, taps on a bedroom window which is on the second floor, etc. It never really scared me, just a bit annoying. I am pretty religious, even though I don't go to church anymore. My belief is pretty strong and I always feel protected. It's more like they want to try and bother me, but they can't hurt me. I live in Sacramento, California, which is a nice central point if you like being outdoors, because within a couple hours drive, one can experience almost any type of environment from desolate mountains, coastal, grasslands, wetlands, and desert. My brother and cousins and I know a really cool camping spot on a lake deep in the Sierras. Not a lot of people know about it, and one can have a beautiful lake surrounded by ancient pines pretty much all to oneself. One can be as loud or as quiet as one wants to be without any complaints. On a weekend in August 2018, my brother, his girlfriend, and a bunch of cousins went camping to that lake. I didn't go because my wife had to work that weekend, and I didn't want to go without her. We have been happily married for four years and have not slept apart a single day since then. That Saturday was extremely hot in the valley, triple digits with no breeze, so I figured I would take my bike and join the guys for the day, cool off for a while, and come home in the evening. Maybe it wasn't the best idea. Once I got up to higher elevation, it got a lot colder, and the road was really slick with slimy runoff before it turned into gravel. It's not that fun on a bike, but I already knew what to expect, so we had a great time and it was time for me to leave. I started riding out when I got to the road. I noticed that it was even more slimy than before. It was a slick and twisty road, which is fun when it's dry. I also had to avoid several deer. With the sun beginning to set, it was becoming even less safe. I rode until I was able to get service and called my wife and told her that it was just too unsafe for me to come home and it would be better for me to come in the morning. Needless to say, she was very unhappy to say the least, and we got into a really heated argument. We never argue. Throughout our relationship, we only had a few arguments, and they all got resolved almost immediately. However, this was a really big one. So, I rode back to camp. I, without camping gear, pissed off, tired, and disappointed in myself. My brother had a hammock set up about five yards from the lake, and an extra sleeping bag, so I decided to sleep in it. It was super comfortable, and with my riding gear on, I was warm. Around 2 a.m., I woke up to relieve myself, and I went towards the lake. I went back into the hammock and was getting warm and comfortable. 
I suddenly felt a very strong sense of dread and spiritual unease. I felt stuff like that before, and it never bothered me because it was never to this magnitude. It was exponentially stronger. This was a legitimately scary feeling. Then I heard footsteps coming downhill towards me. They were easy to hear because the ground was covered in pine needles. The footsteps sounded bipedal with a very long stride. I know what different animals sound like, whether it's deer, bear, boar, or most animals that live in California. It walked past my brother's tent and stopped next to my hammock. I covered my face with a sleeping bag because I couldn't look at it. This is extremely out of character for me. I could sense it very strongly, and I knew that it was something huge. It bent down by the sleeping bag right where my head was and began whispering something right into my ear. I am fluent in three languages and can recognize a lot of different dialects, including Native American ones. What this was whispering to me was like no human or animal language I have ever heard. It spoke extremely fast, and it sounded menacing. And to reiterate, this was right into my ear through the sleeping bag. I can't say how long this went on, but it was several minutes. I began praying internally, and almost immediately it walked away, and all the nasty darkness was completely gone. I calmly went to sleep. Overall, I consider myself a relatively rational person, so... Next morning, I was somewhat perplexed. Was it just a bad dream? Was it some sort of sleep paralysis brought forth by the stress of my argument? Exhaustion? Was I just going completely crazy? So I didn't really want to mention it to anyone. However, when we were eating breakfast, my brother's girlfriend asked me if I was walking around their tent in the middle of the night. They thought I went uphill to get a snack from the cooler or something. They also heard some weird sounds. After I told them about my experience, they were pretty unnerved. When I came home, I found out that my wife couldn't sleep that whole night because she had a really bad feeling that something happened to me. I still don't know what it was, but at least there is a chance that I'm not completely crazy. I looked around many forums and sites, but have never found any information or similar experiences. This happened in August 2018, and I remember it as vividly as I did that morning. This one is from Kirk from Nashville. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. When I was young, it first started with dreams of walking into my house at that time. But as I entered the house, everything changed altogether with a family of four going about their business. If I had to guess, around the 1920s. I would walk around, but nothing happened, nor did they notice me. Different family and friends of the family had met the male numerous times. He was the one that caused the most trouble. Then things got worse for me. I was sleeping one night and woke up floating in the air, being held by the father wearing farmer clothes, glasses, and a hat. And his son, at the same time and I, looked towards my closet and noticed a green room with smoke coming from it, and they were trying to take me there. Luckily, I was able to break free, fall onto my bed, and ran for the stairs and noticed them coming for me, so I somehow leaped down past a bunch of stairs and started screaming. My parents heard me and came rushing. They ended up telling me that when they opened the door, my face was completely white 
and I ended up sleeping on their floor, holding onto the bed. A couple of days go by, and I had another dream, and a woman appeared, sitting in a rocking chair, holding a baby, and says, Don't worry about him anymore. He's not going to bother you. This one is from Laura. I didn't feel like myself in that house. I wasn't a good person when I lived there. I was angry and cold and bitter, and I wasn't the only one affected. Even my cat changed. She was aggressive and mean and would viciously attack me without warning. Maybe the house was the reason why my boyfriend did the things he did to me. The tiny house was a steal. The cute little one-bedroom with the washer and dryer cost me only $425 to rent. The landlady's husband would even come by every week to mow the lawn for me. The landlady chose me out of all the applicants because my car was clean. If you take care of your car, you'll take care of your house, she said. Moving in was the best feeling in the world. I was 21 years old and had my own place for the first time. For a short time, anyway. My boyfriend decided to move in a few weeks later, and things were good between us, so I didn't say no. The house was brightly lit with a low ceiling, huge windows, and soft carpet. My boyfriend joked that it was just our size. We were both short, but he could touch the ceiling without much trouble. The kitchen was orange and yellow, straight out of the 70s, but the rest of the house had been remodeled recently. I loved every inch of that house. That first night, I woke up in the middle of the night to see a black silhouette of a tall man in a fedora standing at the open door of my closet. I simply rolled over and fell back to sleep. The next day, I remembered what I had seen in the night and, with a shiver, closed the closet door. As I got into bed later that day, the closet door slowly creaked open. I got up and shut it again, making sure it was latched this time. When I woke up the next morning, the closet door was open. The other unusual occurrences started off slowly. My cat would gaze fixedly at the ceiling, only for us to hear a banging or strange whirring in that spot moments later. Shadows would dart in front of the lit computer tower that sat at the other end of the bedroom while I was laying in bed. I would feel someone sit down on the side of the bed, only to realize that no one was there. I used to smoke cigarettes, and occasionally the smoke would trickle in through the windows of the house, and the banging in the attic would get louder and louder until I made sure all the windows and doors were firmly closed. I would wake up and see the dark silhouette almost every night. One day, my boyfriend was taking a nap in the living room while I sat at the other end of the couch doing some homework when I heard a child's giggle, clear as day, coming from the open door of my bedroom. I looked over at my boyfriend, who was suddenly wide awake. Did you hear that? he asked. Another time, I was getting ready to leave the house when one of those cheap four-legged back massagers that were popular in the mid-2000s suddenly flipped over on the coffee table where I had placed it the night before. I put it back upright and pushed it around, trying to make it flip over again. But the legs were sturdy. I looked at my boyfriend, who looked at me, and we quickly left for the day. We all changed in the house, slowly at first. I would get moody and angry and think dark thoughts. I couldn't sleep most nights and would watch infomercials until the sun came up. 
My cat became so vicious I considered putting her down. With no provocation, she would suddenly leap towards my face, biting and scratching. The vet didn't have any explanation for her change in behavior, and her eyes glowed red in every photograph I took of her. My boyfriend became violent. It started with him screaming at me for things that I did or didn't do, to backing me up against a wall and hitting the wall around me, to grabbing my arms so hard he'd leave bruises, to waking me up in the night by slamming me onto the bed or pulling me violently to the floor. Then one day, I got a message on Facebook from a girl. She was writing to inform me that my boyfriend had been cheating on me. It was like a punch in the gut and a ray of hope. I finally had a reason to leave. I could pack up and move out and go somewhere else. No more creepy house, no more abusive boyfriend. But it didn't work out that way. My boyfriend came home, and I confronted him about it. He became enraged and smashed my computer and started throwing furniture. I was afraid he would hurt me too, so I jumped in my car and drove off, but I had nowhere to go. I had no one. My life was falling apart. I was flunking most of my classes. The new place I was working at shut down unexpectedly, and I had to go back to the crappy gas station job that I hated. I'd lost most of my friends, and I didn't know how to talk to my family about what was going on. I was so hurt and so angry and so hateful and so alone. So I went back home. After seven years of sobriety, he was drunk. His wrists slit. Not deep enough to kill him, but deep enough to scare me into staying with him. He attempted suicide twice more. We were laying in bed one night when he stopped breathing for a moment before shooting upright and saying, I did something bad. I took all the pills in the house. Can you take me to the emergency room? I'm still angry that he tried to kill himself while in bed with me. If he hadn't changed his mind, would I have awoken to a cold, dead corpse in the morning? Would I ever have been able to recover from that? The last time was his closest. It was pills again and booze. He was rambling about the bad man in the closet. The one I would wake up to regularly, but never told him about. The kids. There are two kids. They're scared of him. But he can't get to them. As I pulled him up and forced him out the door to take him to the hospital, he pointed to the spot in the kitchen where he said the stairs used to be. He wants the kids in the attic. But they took out the stairs, and now he can't get to them. I had him committed that time, but I could only get him in for a 72-hour hold. They pumped him full of medication and returned him to me, never asking me if I actually wanted him back. Soon after, when I was home alone, I went outside for a cigarette and found a small group of elderly men and women taking pictures in front of my house. They waved me over and said that they had grown up in the house. They asked if they could come inside and look around. There were so many kids, they said, in that tiny house that all seven of them slept in the unfinished attic. They told me about their two siblings who died in a fire in the attic. After the fire, they sealed it up and took out the stairs because no one would go back up there. I moved out shortly after, 
An old acquaintance from college let me sleep in her kitchen until I got back up on my feet again. I stopped thinking such dark, angry thoughts and worked on my friendships and relationship with my family again. My ex moved out of the house and I think he's doing well. My cat returned mostly to normal and although she suffers from severe anxiety, she's content to spend her time curled up in front of my parents' fireplace. It's been 10 years and we've all moved on. I sometimes still think about that house and wonder who's living there and hope they're doing okay. This next one is from Julie, the ghosts of Whidbey Island. I was born and raised on Whidbey. It's the 40th largest island in the U.S. and is divided up into two parts, the South End, which is where I'm from, and the North End, where the Naval Air Station is. In between is where you will find Fort Casey and Sunnyside Cemetery. Fort Casey was one of three forts built to protect the Puget Sound in 1890. This was called the Triangle of Fire. While the fort itself never saw any action, it was manned by the military until it was surplused in the early 1950s. This was when Washington State Parks took possession of a large portion of the fort, and converted it to recreational use. Currently, the fort is a great place to visit on a sunny day. You can still wander around the old battlements, stand next to the huge guns, and see a ghost or two. Many people have spotted a young man in uniform, patrolling the area only to see him disappear through a wall or door. I am one of those people. My dad was an avid hiker, and he loved parks. Growing up, he always made sure he took me to his favorite spots. There is no shortage of really awesome parks in Washington, especially around where I grew up on Woodby Island. My favorite was Fort Casey. One unusually nice day, my dad decided to take me there to run around. The minute he let me out of the car, I was off running around this giant steel structure. He was never far away from me in case I decided to fall off or something. At one point, I wanted to go down some stairs into one of the tunnels. My dad said he would wait for me at the top and did not go all the way in. I reached the bottom and turned to run into the pitch-black hallway. I know people say that what you remember as a child is usually pretty skewed, but to this day, I remember everything about what I saw. A man in a full World War II uniform was leaning against the wall about three feet away from where I stood. He didn't look scary or seem threatening in any way. I just stood there and stared at him for a few minutes. He looked down at me and smiled, pointed down the long, dark hallway, and shook his head no. Suddenly, I heard my dad calling me from the top of the stairs. Hey, kiddo, what are you doing down there? Come on back up, we gotta go get your mom. I looked up at him and shook my head yes, and when I looked back to where the man was standing, he was gone. I ran up the stairs to my dad, and he carried me back to the car. I can remember saying, Dad, there was a man down there. My dad just shook his head and laughed, the imagination of his five-year-old daughter running wild again. He made no effort to scold me or tell me what I saw wasn't real. I credit this as my first brush with the paranormal. This one is from Katie, and she called it Nowhere to Hide. I awoke to the sound of buzzing, like a tool of some sort. It was a hot springs Texas night, about 3 a.m. or so. 
I was in that bleary state between sleep and consciousness, wondering if I had just dreamed about visiting the dentist. The head of my twin sleigh bed backs up to the bedroom window that looks out over the vegetable garden. When the curtains are open, I can see the moonlit rectangle formed by my window form on the wall above my face. Is that footsteps I hear on the roof? I'd been woken up by squirrels scampering in the attic many times before. The funny thing is that if I turn on my bedroom light, they seem to freeze in their tracks, almost like a game. But this was different. My body is telling me not to move, to stay still, go unnoticed. Then I see the most horrifying detail of my situation broadcast on my wall to confirm my body's instincts. A silhouette. Two silhouettes. Two teardrop-shaped heads atop long necks. Necks no thicker than a candlestick. This is my worst nightmare. Ghost stories and tales of the supernatural are all fun and games until they are there with you and you have nowhere to hide. The buzzing stops. I must be dreaming. Then, a beam of light spanning from one bedroom wall to the other slowly inches its way from the floor of the opposite wall towards my windowsill, scanning for life, I assume. I pull my cover over my head as stealthy as possible. The beam is inching closer now, near the foot of my bed. I hold my breath. I don't think I could breathe even if I wanted to. Now the light blue beam with a faint humming noise is inching towards my toes. Now it's over my feet, my ankles, my calves, my knees, my thighs, my hips. I think I'm going to faint from fear. My whole body feels cold. My belly. What about my parents? My chest? What about my brother? If I can just find a moment to run, maybe I can be quick enough to run to them, and we can flee. My neck. My head. It's over. The last of the scanning beam escapes through my window. I did manage to remain still enough to go unnoticed. Now is my chance. I'll go to my parents and my brother, and we will escape. Their strength in numbers. I'm sure the creatures would want to go unnoticed and not follow us. Then I hear the buzzing sound again. This time I can, as I peek out from under the covers, see the silhouette of a tool. It's spinning and the size of a pizza cutter. I have to make my move. I have to be brave. Then, as if implanted in my brain like a stamp from a silent, inhuman voice, it is made abundantly clear. An image appears in front of my closed eyes. I don't understand how, but I know that they have already taken my family. Many years have passed. I was a high school sophomore then. I'm a grown adult now. I've told that story to a few trusted friends and even my Latin teacher the very day after it happened, all of us choosing to believe that it was just a nightmare. To this day, it is the most vivid dream I have ever had. Every time I think about it, I can remember every detail like I told it to you just now. But I don't want it to be real. Just like all those other strange occurrences at the house that I grew up in. But then the day came. It was honestly quite poetic, if you ask me. I was visiting my parents' house where I grew up. 
the same house where I had that dream. It was October, and I decided it would be fun to watch a scary movie. I sat alone and in the dark in my old room with my computer screen the only light. I found a documentary about extraterrestrials that several friends had recommended I watch for a good scare. I watched the documentary. The story was fantastic, bringing me in and out of reality as I sat alone in the dark in my old room. Until it came to the part where they showed the original footage captured by the protagonist and her colleagues. I watched in horror, a feeling of ice cold slowly creeping down my body from the crown of my head to the tips of my toes, gripping my chair on either side. And I realized that even in our own homes, with the doors locked, that none of us are truly safe and that what happened to my family all those years ago was not a dream. This next terrifying tale is from Matt. I'm in the Navy, and we were pulled into port, and my chief had given me a work list for the night because I was on duty. I have been on my ship for about six or seven months at this time. I had just gotten off watch, and it was around 8 p.m., and I still needed to complete my work list, which consists of cleaning around and under some equipment that is running in my space and painting another equipment that's in my space. The painting is more of a touch-up paint, but I still needed to complete this before the morning because it's my task, and if I don't finish, I'll be held accountable. Also, the space I am in is two levels. The top level has a bunch of equipment that is running and a solid deck. The second deck has some more equipment but it's not operating and has deck plates, and when walking on them, they move and rattle and make noises. So I was cleaning on the top level, and out of the corner of my eye, I get the sense that someone walked by. Now, there is a limited crew on board due to being in port, and the people who would be on board would be asleep at this time, or at least in berthing, and I'm the only one from my division there, so there should not be anyone in my space. So with that in mind... I ignore that feeling and continue to clean. A few moments later, I see the movement again from the corner of my eye, and this time I'm a bit nervous and think someone is fucking with me. So I call out, who's here? Quit fucking with me. No answer. I do a quick look around the top level of the space and see nothing out of the ordinary. I shrug it off and finish my cleaning of the upper level, and I start to gather my materials needed to paint the equipment in the lower level. By this time, I have been in my space for maybe 45 minutes, and you know that feeling you get when you're by yourself and you're always looking around as if someone is there watching you? Well, as I started to paint the equipment on the lower level, I get that feeling. Maybe two or three minutes after I start and my back is to the stairs, I hear the deck plates as if someone has just walked off the stairs, and my head turned so fast that I almost tripped, and I didn't see anyone there. I walk around the lower level, yell out, whoever the fuck is down here, show yourself. This is not funny. And there is no one around that I can see. So I have just a little bit of painting left, maybe 10 or 15 minutes of work, and this time I oriented myself so I can see the stairs, and I'm watching them like a hawk so I can finally catch the dickhead messing with me. I look down for a second to dip my brush in the paint, and again, in the corner of my eye, I see someone walking down the stairs and I hear the deck plates again, and now I'm scared out of my mind because I don't see anyone there. 
I make a decision and say, fuck it, I'm getting out of here. And I go to birthing and take a shower and go to bed, but I didn't sleep much. I get up earlier than everyone else because it's not like I got any sleep anyways. So I can finish painting as fast as I can. I check the space first and see nothing out of order. As soon as another person from my division shows up and someone that I trust, I explain my night to him and he looks very serious at me and says, you must have met Jonesy. And I look at him, wide-eyed, and say, who is that? He says, there was an electrician who was working on a power box and he got shocked so bad that he ended up dying in the space. My mouth just dropped. I didn't believe in ghosts or anything before this, but now I think there has to be something else out there. This next submission was from another friend of mine, Jeremy, after much, much nagging on my part, begging him to please write down the story because he told me once and ever since then I've told so many people this story because it, oh, I'll just let you hear for yourself. It was 2009 and I was home visiting family for spring break. My sister and I stayed up late playing Guitar Hero. It was close to midnight when we heard my mom walk past the living room and towards the bathroom. We both looked at her and said, hey mom, as we were searching for the next song to play. She looked at us and smiled but didn't say anything. She went to the bathroom, closed the door, turned on the bathroom light and fan. We went back to playing, not thinking much. After about an hour of playing, we noticed that we hadn't seen my mom come out. The door was closed and the light and fan were still on. At the time, my mom was taking a medication for her diabetes that had pretty bad side effects. I got up, knocked on the door, and asked my mom if she was okay. She didn't reply. I knocked again, and still no reply. I checked the door handle to see if maybe she went back to bed without turning off the light or the fan, but the door was still locked. My sister and I thought the worst. I told her to unlock the door and check on my mom, fully expecting to see her laying on the floor. My sister rushed to unlock the door. We have one of those useless locks that you can unlock with a butter knife. The door swung open, the lights were on, the fan was on full blast. My mom wasn't there. We looked at each other dumbfounded. We saw mom walk into the bathroom, right? We both stared into the empty bathroom in shock. We quietly sat down on the sofa and started playing Guitar Hero again, still in shock. The following morning at breakfast, we asked my mom if she remembers going to the bathroom. She told us that she never got up, and in fact, she had slept soundly the entire night. This next submission is from April. She called it, Their Eyes Were Black. As a kid, I was always fascinated by scary movies and anything creepy or paranormal, yet I never really bought into it. I thought of it as a fun way to scare myself and pass the time. When I would get home from school, my mom would usually be watching the show A Haunting or one of those top 10 scariest destination shows, so I would join her and it became kind of a ritual. My sister Andrea would sometimes join us when she would get home from work at the local hospital. Her and I are over 10 years apart, me being only 12 at the time and her being 26. Andrea and I were extremely close and she'd often stay with me while my mom and dad went to run the local drive-in theater that had been passed down from my grandparents to my dad. That meant that almost every night in the summer was spent alone with just her and I at home. I remember this one specific night my sister and I were at home. 
She was lying on the couch, asleep, while I was watching YouTube videos on the old desktop in our living room. We had the front door open so we could see through the screen door since earlier, around 8pm, we had ordered pizza, but I forgot to close it afterwards. The windows in the living room were also cracked open to let the cool night air help cool our poorly air-conditioned house. We lived on a main road and cars were always going by so we never really worried about someone trying to break in. So anyway, it was probably around 10 or 11 p.m. and I was mindlessly watching videos when I heard a quiet knocking on the screen door. I immediately snapped out of my daze and looked to my right and noticed two young boys standing at the door. A little freaked out, I turned to my sister who was still asleep on the couch. I leaned over and tried to shake her leg while I kept my gaze fixed on the two kids creepily standing outside. Hey, there's some kids at the door. My sister started to wake up and groaned. What? There's someone at the door? After sitting up and looking at the kids, she immediately felt a little suspicious. She told me to go into the dining room and wait by the phone in case something happened. I did what she told me, but still kept my eyes on the door as I walked away. I tried to get a good look at them, but they had dark hoodies on with the hoods up, so it blocked the light from their faces. I did notice one of them was probably around 12 or 13 years old. The other one looked a little taller and maybe older. If I had to guess, I'd say 14, 15 years old. Why were they out by themselves this late at night? I watched from the dining room as my sister cautiously opened the door and I could overhear the conversation. My sister asked in a concerned voice, Hey, can we help you with something? Where are your parents? The older kid responded in a very demeaning tone. Our car broke down and our parents sent us to call for help. Let us come in and use the phone. I could see my sister do a quick glance of the road, which was clearly visible from our house. There were no cars on the side of the road for at least a mile in both directions. My sister, not wanting to be rude, offered to call someone for them if they would just give her the number. The older boy did not like that. No, we need to use the phone inside your house. Let us in. The boy's tone got more demanding, and he lifted his head up slightly to look her in the eye. My sister immediately drew back and shut the screen door harshly. She said, I can call the police if you need help, but otherwise, I'm sorry, I can't help you. At that time, the smaller boy looked up at her as well, and that's when my sister abruptly shut the front door and bolted it shut. Not knowing why she had just slammed a door in two kids' faces, I walked back into the living room and asked what happened. Andrea, visibly shaken, sat down on the couch and exhaled before she began to speak. (sighs) I don't know if it was just the lighting or not, but their eyes were fucking black, like a fucking demon. My sister was not one to let her imagination get the best of her, but it just seemed crazy. Seriously, I said? They had black eyes? Before I knew it, Andrea got up and quickly walked to one of the large windows in our living room and faced the street, trying to see if they had left. If you don't believe me, that's fine, but something was off about them. The older kid kept wanting to come inside and use the phone instead of letting me call someone for him. Also, why the hell would their parents send their kids to get help? None of it made any damn sense. Shaken and on edge, I watched as my sister looked out all the windows of our house, trying to see where the kids had gone. Keep in mind, this whole thing took place in less than five minutes. 
and these kids could not have gotten far enough from our house for us not to have seen them. Yet, neither of us could see anybody walking down the road or anywhere outside our house. It was like they vanished. Andrea ended up calling our mom and asked if her or our dad could come home early because we were freaked out and did not want to be alone anymore. We tried to keep our mind occupied with games and shitty comedy shows to pass the time. When our mom finally got home, we told her what happened, but of course she was a little skeptical. She did, however, think my sister did the right thing by following her gut feeling. My mom told us she hadn't seen any cars on the side of the road on her way home. I know there are probably a thousand explanations for what happened to us that night, but my sister was convinced she saw two black-eyed kids. It wasn't until almost a year later that my mom, sister, and I were watching a program about urban legends and creepy paranormal encounters that we came across the story of the black-eyed kids. The description was uncanny. We both got chills thinking about what would have happened if my sister had let those two kids or things or whatever they were into our house that night. This one was sent into the show by Noah. So when I was four, my cousin used to say that my next door neighbor was a bruja and said, you go ding dong ditch the house. And I was terrified because he used to make me do it every time. When the bruja was out of the house, we snuck in and saw a lot of religious things, a pentagram and crosses. My cousin took something from the house and we heard the old lady coming back. So we booked it. And that night, I had a nightmare of a bathtub full of blood and a demon coming out of the blood. I woke up to see someone standing over my bed. I tried talking to it, thinking it was one of my cousins, and right before my eyes, it disappeared. Several days later, the old lady died, and I never returned. This last submission of the episode is from Tyler. So, Tyler said he wasn't sure if this was a right fit for the episode, but I disagree. I think it's perfect. I put it here as the last story because I wanted to give a teeny preface. The idea of other dimensions and astral projection and travel and dream travel have always endlessly fascinated me. I've spoken a lot about how my favorite parts of paranormal research and high strangeness are things like time slips and doppelgangers. Those, I feel, go kind of hand-in-hand with things like what I'm about to read. Just totally unexplainable journeys into other worlds. This submission sparked a conversation between a couple friends and I, actually. If you've never heard of the lamp story on Reddit, I highly recommend looking it up. I think I'll even read it on the Patreon page tonight as a sort of companion to this episode. But have you ever had a dream that you woke up from? And this dream feels so real and touched you in such a real and such a powerful way that you felt actual feelings. And when you wake up and realize it was all a dream, you feel sad, like actual sadness. And maybe it lasts only for the few hazy moments after you open your eyes, or maybe it lasts for the rest of the day. All you know is that That dream felt so real that your brain is mourning the loss of this world or a version of your world that doesn't really exist. 
I say all this to put you in a certain mindset as you listen to the following submission. So, here we go. There is a certain author who inspired me to write my stories down. He taught a lesson which saved my life. He taught me how to exercise the things that follow me by catching them in traps of words and sealing them onto the page. But he taught me something else as well. He taught me that a haunted creature like me could find a kind of rest in the forgotten lands of sleep and dream. I have spent lives in those far-off lands. I have wandered the streets and alleys of Celepheus and cuddled the sleek cats that line the garden walls of that fair city. I have climbed the mountains on which the tired gods of Earth used to dance and revel in their youth of so long ago. I have stood on the edge of the barren plateau of Lang, but I didn't dare step foot on that evil plain, because I'm a coward at heart. And a glimpse of that twisting, churning, high priest in yellow has ruined greater dreamers than me. The rolling hills and steep cliffs of that land have a radiant beauty that holds the eye and fills the heart, and the sky there blazes with the golds and purples of a coastal sunset at all hours. Here the moon never shows its bloated corpse-like face, but the sun is gentle and kindly, not like the burning ball of searing flame of our world. The clouds form the high walls and twisted soaring spires of some radiant city not built by men's hands, and even the dark and abyssal forests of towering phosphorant mushrooms have in them their own strange and alien beauty. I loved those hills and glades like the woods of my home state in the waking world. Often, I have lingered by cool, clear brooks nestled in secret valleys and spent lazy years on gold-crested hilltops, ringed with ancient oaks and blanketed with tiny blue wildflowers. But I can't wander the lands I love anymore. Something is barring them from me. I wake up in the middle of the night, drenched in sweat, shaking from dreams I can't remember, but the fear of those dreams lasts well into the day. I can't stand the dark anymore. I used to love the night, with its shadows and mysteries. Now, the sick, pale light of the moon causes me to shudder, and I can't even leave my house until the hated sun sits well in the sky. Something happened in the waking world that caused this. Some piece of my mind which, before, allowed me to make the journey down the thousand steps and through the silver gate, has been stolen. The space that this key once occupied sits maddeningly empty, and no matter what mental and physical depths I search, it is always just beyond my reach. I say it happened in the waking world, but I wasn't there when this horrible event happened. It began when I was walking down the thousand steps to the Temple of Eternal Flame, where the Silver Gate is housed. I have made this journey many times, and I walked with an easy comfort brought on by familiarity. But when I reached the opening to the temple, I felt something strange right away. The temple is often bustling with ancient priests and young accolades, studying the depths of the flame in order to find the secrets of the waking world. But when I walked through the archway leading into the temple's foyer, I found it deserted. 
empty of dreamers and those who dwell forever in dreamland alike. I searched the temple with ever-rising panic, but found no one. And coming to the room of the eternal brazier, I found the greatest cause of dread I've seen yet. For the eternal brazier sat unlit, its black iron bowl cold as an ancient crypt. The sight caused my panic to erupt, and I ran from the room in a daze, unsure of where I ran to or what I ran from. I came to myself again at the silver gate, rattling it against its ancient stone foundations and crying out to some gods I do not know the names of to grant me the entrance I deserve. But the gate held mockingly fast, where before it had swung open easily, and even though I tried for hours, I couldn't budge the gate an inch. I was left with no choice but to climb the thousand steps again to the waking world and the wretched body that waited for me there. I came to the wall of light that is the waking world's border in a short time, and stepped through into my physical body once more. I woke up in my bed with an unshakable feeling of dread and noticed two things immediately. First, my body had been acting on its own. I knew this because I was wearing pajamas, even though I sleep bereft of clothing as clothes tend to impede the journey from my physical body. Also of note was the fact that my feet were coated in a thick layer of black mud, of the type found on the banks of the creek near my house. I have a history of sleepwalking, though, and I wasn't overly surprised to see this evidence of an apparent nocturnal expedition. The second thing I noticed, however, was cause for much greater concern, I keep my windows of my room covered in heavy black curtains, for the sun's light has ever been a plague on my body. Despite this, I felt the distinctive impression of being watched by someone. I pulled the curtains down in a frenzy, but saw nothing outside the windows besides the deceased moon, gibbous and glaring into my room with unmistakable intent. I glanced around frantically, searching for the source of my growing unease. My eyes locked on the ceiling above my bed, though I didn't know why until a few moments later. For staring at the ceiling for some time, I finally saw what must be causing my discomfort. As I watched, a pair of wide gray eyes rolled wetly open with a sickening popping sound in the ceiling just above my bed, and then began to scan the room. The worst of it was that I recognized the eyes immediately. They could be nothing other than the eyes I had seen hundreds of times. Indeed, each time I passed a mirror. For the hateful gray eyes growing from my ceiling were none other than my own. I stood stock still, frozen with terror and confusion, but when those eyes, having scanned the room, locked onto the eyes in my skull, I was filled with the most profound sense of wrongness. These things, whatever they may be, were no creatures of Earth, and I knew immediately that they belonged to some world beyond ours. I burst into action, seizing the long knife I kept beneath my pillow and throwing it at the devilish orbs with a cry of fear and rage. My aim was true, I'm certain. I have practiced throwing the knife for years and have had many skilled and esoteric teachers in the art, but there was no blood, no impact to satisfy my rage and ease my fear. 
The knife struck nothing but ceiling, and the eyes were nowhere to be seen, like they had never been there in the first place. I clutched my face with shaking, sweating hands, fervently trying to convince myself that it had been nothing, just a remnant of my dreams, or a facsimile of my sick mind, but a deeper part of my mind knew this wasn't true. The eyes had been real, as real as the hands against my face, as real as the walls of Celepheus. Something, someone, was watching me, and not just that, but watching me through my own form. Something had taken my eyes, and was using them against me, and the eyes were not the only sign. After that night, the usual paranormal activity in my house began to escalate dramatically. The thing which dragged its way around the attic seized entirely and was replaced by a plague of rats so severe that their scratching was heard at all hours of the night and by others than me, and so numerous were they that the walls fairly bulged and rippled with their passing. The pioneer girl from the wagon trains, who often spoke to me and others in my family, suddenly stopped showing herself, and has never been seen since. The tree, which once creaked throughout the night, telling me its ancient tales, has been silenced by some unseen force, and sings to my brothers and sisters no more. This continued for months. I would wake, shaking and glancing at the ceiling, mere inches above my face, checking for eyes or any other signs of the thing following me. To this day, I don't know what it was, but it has touched me. I tried the gate every night during those long months, and when awake, I spent hours searching arcane accounts for other entrances to my beloved dreamland, but each new doorway I read about came to nothing, either being a lie or having been sealed shut by some force unknown to me, or being too dangerous for me to even dare trying. For the portals appear most often in places where what you would call reality is thin, and dreamland is not the only world that borders ours. What's more, not all who dwell beyond our world are friendly or even strictly physical. There are beings made purely of light, with no concept of human life, and creatures made purely of hunger, who find our supple flesh to be a delightful comfort. And so my frantic search came always to nothing, until I began to grow desperate with longing, and ever more frantic, as the waves of time were beginning to erode my precious memories of dreamland. Finally, however, the climax approached. One night, early in the morning before the sun rose, I jerked awake. Although jerked isn't quite the word, I felt my mind being pulled rapidly out of darkness, like a ball attached to a bungee cord, swinging wildly back and forth, the way one awakens only when danger is near. Despite this panic, however, my body was incapable of moving, and no matter how hard I mentally struggled, my muscles simply wouldn't budge. My eyes snapped open, immediately scanning the ceiling, but I saw nothing. I still wasn't able to move, though, and as I lay there, paralyzed, I felt the touch of cold, dead fingers on either side of my head, near my temples. I fought that touch for all I was worth, but I was powerless in the face of this great evil. There came then a slight shh and a movement of air across my face and a feeling of sluggishness fell over me. The bed just over my head creaked 
like our old oak used to, and a pale, smiling face loomed over my vision, and the hands on my temples began to move in slow, almost soft circles. The eyes of this face were mine, of course, dark gray, tinted with bluish green, just like the orbs I spy nearly every day. The creature eased back, beyond my range of vision, and I felt a pulling sensation in my head, like a vacuum sucking something out of my ears. I tried everything I could imagine, struggling until my body began to literally vibrate with built-up tension. Finally, the hands eased away from my head, but they took something with them. As they left, I was able to move, and I leapt off my six-foot-high bed and ran from the evil fucking house I've lived in since childhood. I didn't stop until I reached my grandparents' house a mile or so through the dark woods. I haven't been able to visit the dreamland since, and I haven't been back to the house I was born in either. But soon, I'll be going back, for I feel I'm ready to face the awful thing that took my silver key from me and take it back. I don't know if I'll survive, but I have five younger siblings. I can't let it hurt them as well. And I want my key back. This may be my last story. I hope I can send another. But if I don't, send no one after me. They won't find anything besides dark woods and an ancient dilapidated shed filled with rusty tools and an ancient knife carved from the bone of my ancestors. The blade is mine, and you know the shed. But the thing that haunts that house, the bastard that took my key won't be found by anyone besides my immediate family. And if it is what I think it is, you won't find any sign of me either. All evidence of my passing will be ethereal, and the creature I go to face is ethereal as well. If you should have the desire, you may find me in the dreamlands that I love, even if I must forfeit my life on this earth. I will return to my true home on the rolling hills of Dreamland, and I shall dwell there forevermore. Goodbye, if this is goodbye. Be wary of the darkness and the things that watch from beyond, and idiot gods and their crazed followers. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to all of those who shared your stories. I know I've been neglecting the Patreon page lately. Believe me, I've been (laughs) losing sleep about it, actually. Don't worry, I'm going to be back in full force. I won't go into details, but January has been a very rough month, and I feel like I'm finally coming out the other side. But for Patreon shoutouts, thank you so much to Danielle Campbell, Laura Nelson, Nicole Thompson, and welcome back to Kelly Economon. I'm so happy your sister is doing better, love. I'm sending you all giant hugs for you and for me. I could use a hug this month. Do you ever just need a hug? Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your donations. And like I said, I will be back to Patreon in full force ASAP. Remember to use my code SLEEP for free shipping from Vistaprint. And by using my offer codes from my sponsors, you are supporting Scary to Sleep in big ways. You can follow the show on all social media, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. I think that's all. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>